You are listening to Sing Amen, Ministering Through Music. I am Jennifer Kerr Budziak, and welcome to our podcast. O God of the waiting, we are Abraham and Sarah, no longer sure what it means to trust in your promise. We are your people wandering in the desert, certain that 40 years is too long to bear. We are the woman hemorrhaging for 12 years, desperate to touch your cloak. You are our only hope. We long to bear a child, to create and love as you create and love us, to teach our child that they are your child, a child of God. We place our longing in your hands, knowing that faith is the opposite of certainty, trusting you will be there with us wherever this waiting leads, trusting there will be new life after our sorrow, water in our desert wandering, and response to our despairing pleas. Asking all this in the name of the one who constantly waits for us with open arms, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Today we have a conversation with Kate Williams, who compiled and edited the beautiful new resource of Womb and Tomb, Prayer in Time of Infertility, Miscarriage, and Stillbirth. The resource is made up of a book, a CD, and a music collection, and I'm pretty sure it's the first collection of its kind. Since it came off press not very long ago, it's already been adopted by hospital chaplains, parishes, individuals. Uh, It's been featured on the Music Ministry Mondays podcast for NPM, and Kate will be speaking about it at the Los Angeles Religious Education Conference this week. In today's podcast, we will hear an interview with Kate that we did right after the book came out, interspersed with some readings from the book and some of the music from the collection. Also, the prayer that we heard Kate read at the opening of the podcast was written by Melissa Carnal, and this can be found in the book as well. Kate's work to lift the veil of silence around a pain and a grief that we've been culturally conditioned not to speak of and to shift it away from being a women's issue into a wider concern that affects many, many people, both men and women, and to help us find a way as church to walk through this pain together and to minister to one another, it's tremendously important. And I'm so grateful to have had the chance to speak with her about it. So Kate, thank you so much for sitting down to talk about this wonderful new resource. Uh, Maybe if you could first just kind of tell us a little bit about who you are, how your journey through life as a musician, as an artist, as a woman of faith, uh, how that has brought you here. Because we know you're also, you're, you're a writer, you're a composer, you do a lot of stuff. So just who are you? How did you how did how did you get here? Um, I grew up in Northwest Iowa, and actually, really close to the the border of Minnesota, which is where we actually went to church in Worthington, Minnesota, 
in a vibrant and diverse bilingual community um, at St. Mary's Parish. And so I first got into music ministry through their Coro Hispano, which is where I was the, the accompanist, and I learned how to read uh, lead sheets and work in an ensemble uh, with Spanish speakers. Um, and prior to that, I had been nurtured and fostered by the uh, organist in our town, uh, Bobby Snow, who was my confirmation sponsor and always supported me and encouraged me to bring my gifts to church. Of course, at that point, never really imagined making a career out of it or you know, finding a, a vocational call in music ministry. But I think by um, making a lot of connections to people in you know, liturgical composers and people working in music ministry and being a part of the summer uh, program called Music Ministry Alive, I think that helped me kind of deepen my own faith and, and kind of hear that call a little more clearly. So I came to Chicago to go to DePaul University to the music school and started working in, in area churches and um, really got immersed in the possibilities of what liturgy and music can do uh, through my work with uh, Tony Alonzo at St. Nicholas Church in Evanston, which is where I later became the music director, and that's where I was before I started my tenure at GIA. For the last two and a half years, I've been at GIA learning about the kind of the behind the scenes of how the music that we that shapes our, our sung prayer is generated and, and ends up in hymnals and octavos and is uh, how we learn to sing our faith. Um, so I feel privileged to be in this place and be a part of this conversation that's, that's shaped my whole life and I know shapes the lives of so many. So that's how I got to GIA. And how I got to this project in particular was really born out of my experience of the need in parish life. I will say that I, I think that I made light of it for too long. Mm. I know that in my work at St. Nicholas, at least one time, I was approached by a woman who asked if I would ever consider having a liturgy to recognize and acknowledge children who are lost to miscarriage or stillbirth. And I... I didn't really take advantage of that moment, probably because I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. And it wasn't, at the time, loud enough for me to, to listen longer. And then a friend of mine called me once and had a family member who was kind of going through this type of loss and said, do you know anything about how we could hold a prayer service if a funeral wasn't quite right? And I I said, no, I don't. And I, I looked in the Book of Blessings and I found a, a blessing of over parents after a miscarriage. But other than that, I think I couldn't really find any resources that would help people pray in that moment and help communities to be present for and acknowledge and support and lift up women, couples, families who were going through this terrible but hidden kind of tragedy. It's, it's, yes, it's a tragedy that seems, I mean, it's so widespread. And I, I have so many friends who have been through some form of this, but it's something we don't talk about. Just to share something here, my son, who is now 16, I still remember when, you know, when I was pregnant with him and it was my first pregnancy and I was, you know, doing that, that whole bubbling over with just, oh, this is such an exciting, wonderful thing. And I had a group of close friends that I sing with and 
And so I'm here talking about my pregnancy and how happy I am and too bad how sick I feel. The point being actually delighted secretly that this wonderful thing that I've been waiting for is happening to me. And I didn't find out until about a year and a half later that one of my friends was suffering a miscarriage right at that time. And I didn't know. And she didn't tell me. She's like, well, I didn't want to, you know, you were so happy. I didn't want to do anything to sully your joy at all. But to know after the fact that she was in this pain at the same time. And, and, and then I even look back and ask the question, had I known, had we all known in that time, would, would I have known how to be with her in that grief at that time? And I don't know. I look back and I don't know. Because it's something that we, yeah, we don't talk about. One of the things that is just so wonderful about this resource is that you've given us in this book things to talk about. You've given us stories and you've given us prayers and you've given us rituals and you've given us songs. And even if the stuff in this book was not just so beautiful and well-crafted, simply its existence mm. opens a door to conversation mm -hmm. and exploration and the ability to talk about this. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, I had a lot of good conversations with Laura Kelly Finucci, who's written a book with her husband called Grieving Together. Um, it's with Our Sunday Visitor. And their book is so beautiful and also practical. Like It helps a woman or a couple know, here's what will happen if you're expecting a miscarriage. Here are your rights um, if you're in a hospital or if you find yourself wondering, well, what do I do next? And it's really helpful in that way, but also tells a lot of uh, people's personal stories because no two stories are alike. It won't happen the same way. Uh, and the book that they wrote specifically is geared towards the couple and how to continue the journey through grief and unexpected joys and um, guilt um, together and to kind of make that holy. But I, I really appreciated in my conversations with her a sense of camaraderie in, in making a groundswell of attention towards the issue. So I was happy to make a resource that could mostly appeal from a, a parish minister point of view. How do I enter into acknowledging or standing beside someone who's going through this type of, of grief? Um, but I think that these books are coming out at the same time is going to help overall the attention and the awareness towards a reality that is really present. Um, I, there are different statistics that you can find, but as many as one in four pregnancies are, are not viable. As many as one in four. That means as many as one in four couples in our young church are potentially under-ministered to. Mm -hmm that they don't know how to bring this very real and deep and painful experience into the number one place you should be able to bring it. Right. And so I do think it's important to create that, that the attention towards it and the groundswell of energy towards uh, ministering to families in this way. But I, I also tried to make the book something that a parish minister, a grief counselor, a music minister, a liturgist, a pastor, um, might give to someone to take home because not all prayer life happens in the church building and some of it happens at home and some of it needs to be done in quiet with God and hopefully some items in the book can help facilitate that kind of prayer and maybe some of it will help a couple to be able to relate a little bit better to one another because oftentimes people talk about how the experience of miscarriage or infertility or a stillbirth put such an added strain on their marriage. Mm -hmm. 
and in the ways that they dealt with the grief differently. Um, so there are accounts in the book too from men and from women and uh, trying to of course not articulate all the perspectives but articulate a variety so people can get an idea of um, oh that's how she felt when her body was literally going through the loss of the pregnancy. Oh, that's how he felt when he had to go to work and hear from his coworkers. Are you trying for children? Are you not gonna try for children? How do you enter into um, understanding what, it, what it's like for people to have to answer the same questions all the time about a reality that they really hope to be true? Uh, but at this point is not in the cards for them. I'll share a little bit about my own uh, journey and I'm treading lightly because I know that the end of my story ends with a beautiful and brave and curious little girl who just turned two. Mm -hmm. And I know that that's, I, I have so much gratitude and probably an, an increased sense of um, thankfulness for her life. Uh, because of how <laughs> it was difficult for her to get here. But she is here, and I know that not all stories end that way. But I'll tell it because I think it's important for stories to be heard and told and for people to feel like it's okay to share their story. So my husband and I, we were uh, ready to bring a child into the world and felt like we were in a place in our life when it was the right time and told our closest friends that we were, we were gonna try. And it didn't happen right away, like it happened for my best friend right away. And so, and so the months would kind of go by, and, and it was months and not years for us. And I know that for some, it's, it's years. It's a lot longer. And right, right about when we were to the point when we were going to see the doctor about fertility treatment, um, I found out that I was pregnant. I was expecting. So we were thrilled. It took longer than we thought, but we were thrilled. And right after we had waited the, the golden rule of waiting, you know, 12 weeks or whatever before you tell anybody, I had heard back from my doctor that we needed to come back right away because my blood work for a genetic screening was concerning. And yeah, they use words like concerning. Yeah. And it's, yeah. yeah, like, oh, that's great. And the doctor said, so your blood work came back. He said there's an increased risk. It was like instead of one in 10,000, your chances are one in five that you, your baby has uh, something called trisomy 13, 18, which usually results in um, a miscarriage or sometimes the child is born and lives only for a few minutes or their lives are very short. And he said, either way, you should go get this test and they'll confirm whether or not your blood work is positive for this. So even though one in five, 80% chance that it was a false positive, 20% chance was way too high. So I felt very close to loss and I had the very scary test and I had a very dark, I think it was like three days before I got the test results back. And it happened to be on the Feast of Mary Magdalene when the doctor called and said that oh, wow. she was okay. Uh, and I think that moment, it quickly focused my attention on how fragile life really is and how nobody does anything to deserve it, positive or negative but it's fragile and it's precious, and it's not to be taken for granted. But that experience changed me. And because of that, and because of the experience of uh, my friends who had been looking for 
some way to pray through this. And the people I ministered to and with also saying, where's the language, where's the way in? I felt like this project was the right thing to do. And it takes, it's an interesting project for GIA because it's primarily a pastoral resource, but it uses material that we as music ministers, as music directors, use all the time for our various ways to to celebrate life or to grieve or to have a parish funeral. We know how to do those things and we know that, that through music we're able to come maybe to our most authentic feelings and our most authentic prayers to God and, and with one another. So the, the project itself, it consists of the book and a CD and music collection that accompany it. So the three, That's right. the three things go together. Yeah, and the music uh, on the CD and in the music collection could certainly be used in liturgy, but it's also meant to be used as a, you know, for private prayer too. So if a pastoral minister was uh, looking for something else to, to offer to someone as a way to continue their prayer you know, outside of the church life, it would be a wonderful thing to, to hand someone to say, maybe this will help too. So can you tell us, like, how is the book put together? You know, it has the many sections to it, and can I mm -hmm. let you sort of walk us through it? Sure. Uh, the book begins very intentionally with, well, there's a, a little foreword that explains a little bit of what I've shared with you about why I think it's important, and then there's a section about how to use this book. So that could be useful to the, the parish minister or to the individual saying, okay, I have a book of prayers, and now what do I do with it? <laughs> I think those sections are, are really very helpful. But then it begins very intentionally with uh, five different stories from uh, different perspectives of loss or uh, infertility. And I'm very grateful to the contributors who wrote such beautiful accounts of their, their experience. For some of them, it was many years ago. For some of them, it's still an ongoing reality. You know, people of reproductive age still facing the, the question of why or how long or what if. And I think they did a really good job articulating what would have been helpful from their church community during this time. So I'll read just a little bit. Uh, this is from Dr. Susan Reynolds, who works at Emory University in the Catholic Studies program. Uh, she wrote an account that is really, really beautiful. But I think her words about women's experience are particularly stunning. So I'll read a little bit of that Please. now. She says, in the realm of women's experience, the mandate to forget is magisterial. Pregnant women are typically cautioned to wait until their second trimester, after the risk of miscarriage has declined, to tell others that they are expecting. Implicitly contained within this well-meaning advice is the expectation of forgetting. If you have a miscarriage, the age-old wisdom seems to convey the right thing to do is never to tell anyone about the child you carried and lost. Instead, you should go on with life as though nothing has happened and never speak of it again. And she goes on to say, over generations, the stream of imposed forgetting slowly erodes the bedrock of communal experience, where we should find a mountain, memories upon memories, stories upon stories, rituals upon rituals. We encounter instead a gaping canyon, a tradition of absence. Miscarriage is a phenomenon as intrinsic to the human condition as birth and death. Yet the unique grief that unfolds in the mysterious space in between life and death remains unspoken, even within families and among close friends. 
I think what she says later about liturgy is also important. Uh, she says here, and, and it should be important to, to pastoral ministers about yes. why we should do this. In the liturgy, anamnesis is the Greek term given to ritual words and actions of remembrance. Liturgical remembering is an act of truth-telling. It is a way of saying, this is our story. This is where we have come from. This is the living God in whose image we were formed and by whose love we are saved. Deep in this relentless remembering, this protest against forgetting God's work of salvation is rooted our hope. Wow. So stunning. So it was Megan's story that talked about her her response to, you know, the, the word miscarriage, which is mm-hmm. the one we use. And you yes. talk about that a little? Or? Yeah, it, I, language is always a problem. <laughs> and unfortunately, we, we, we only have these words to work with. And so we have to be careful, I think, about how we use them. But Megan does a good job of talking about particularly the word of miscarriage. She says, I have always hated the word miscarriage. It feels so full of blame. And while my head can understand the science, My heart cries out to you and all of my babies, six of them now. I'm so sorry I miscarried you, that I couldn't carry you stronger, that I couldn't hold you tighter. But I did carry you strong. I did hold you tight. In all of my miscarriages, my body held on for days and weeks after your heart stopped beating. Friends, nurses, and midwives always offered and sometimes strongly encouraged the option of speeding the process along but I never wanted that. I wanted to carry you for every minute that I could. I wanted to be with you for each moment that I had. I wanted to bring your life to its final completion. The courage of these men and women to put their stories out in such a vulnerable way, you know, to tell the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I, I feel so privileged to, to be engaged in, in this storytelling with people. Um, I, I put stories at the beginning of the resource because I think it's it's important for our rituals and for our ministry to really be grounded in lived experience. And you're right, these people who've contributed have courageously offered their vulnerabilities. In their, an area that is usually silent. They, yeah. they are putting out the stories that people don't talk about. Right. And it's such a gift. Yeah. So it's really important to ground the work in these lived experiences. And I think that's the way in for people to understand why it's important to offer this type of ministry in their parishes. Then after the stories, there's a series of hymns and uh, poetry, which hymn texts really are poetry when you you just read them instead of sing them, And, and blessings that I think are good to read alone. They're good for ministers to use as, you know, motivation or in inspiration to help them be present in, in a, a new and sensitive way, to help them learn how to preach on the topic if, if they ever are put in that position, which there's an example of a preaching at a communal service in the back of the book, which is just beautiful. I'm very grateful to Father Bob Oldershaw for offering his contribution here. In the, the section of poems, hymns, and blessings was probably my favorite section of the book. Just so many words from so many different writers and sources and just so rich with so many different images. And was, would you read us maybe? Yeah, I, I particularly love this text by Adam Tice because it has kind of a, a lullaby quality to it. 
which I think is sensitive to the moment, but I've found a lot of solace in it. God holds us when our communities are holding us in prayer and in, in, uh, in solidarity. And the text says, in the morning, in the evening, God is holding you, holding you. In the daytime, in the nighttime, God is holding you still. Anywhere you may go, God will go with you. Anywhere you may go, you are God's child. In the morning, in the evening, God is holding you, holding you. In the daytime, in the nighttime, God is holding Uh, 
And then I've compiled a list of prayers for the child, if there's a specific child who has died, um, and also for the parents and all those who mourn for the loss. And I'm really grateful to the liturgist David Philippard for his help in compiling all these prayers because he really did a good job of pulling from a number of different faith traditions, some really beautiful language that when you see it all in one place, helps us to realize that we, we do have a we do have a language for blessing, for asking, for healing, or we're at least trying. Yeah. And it's it's beautiful to see that kind of ecumenical approach. Uh, to how we're doing this, you know, in different faith communities. And then there's also a compilation of scripture readings that would be useful either in private prayer or in a service, Mm -hmm. and psalmody. And, of course, the beginning of the book, I think, does a good job of explaining how the psalms or scriptures are intended to be used, but how you also might use them on your own. Then at the end of the book, there are five official rites or services. There's a blessing of parents after miscarriage, which is what's found in the Book of Blessings. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know that you would know that that exists unless you specifically if you don't go looking for it. For right. It. right. Uh, then the Archdiocese of St. Louis has put together a really lovely, it's called the Order for the Naming and Commendation of an Infant Who Died Before Birth. So it's a oh, way to wow. recognize the name of, of a child often. Oftentimes, people name their children before they're born, mm-hmm. or the birthing of them inspires a name. And so to be able to bring that named child in the presence of the community, for the community to acknowledge the child by name, is really profound. And the Archdiocese of St. Louis has graciously allowed their right to appear here as well. I think it's also something that's available in a number of dioceses now uh, across the nation. And there's a Liturgy of Remembrance, which is an adaptation of the the blessing of parents after a miscarriage that was put together by Tony Alonzo. And I think his attention to the pastoral need at the moment, I think, is especially reflected in his beautiful intercessions that appear here. So I'm really grateful that we were able to include those. And then because I was asked about it, we included an example of prayer with siblings, cousins, or other children, which is mostly just kind of a litany of gratitude that allows parents to see how they might acknowledge the the child that maybe the other children were expecting to be a part of their lives or were hoping to be a part of their lives in uh, a language that he's a little more comfortable for children to digest and also to learn to you know offer gratitude for all that that life is even the hard parts of life and to maybe talk about even though the child's not able to be growing up with them the gift of knowing that the child exists and maybe changed the course of their family's life i'm so glad that you included that service to the you know the service for children because whether the children the siblings the cousins would necessarily consciously be aware of it that culture of silence begins at a very young age and the children assuming that they are old enough to you know if they knew that a baby was coming and the baby doesn't come and nobody ever talked about why or what happened that silence speaks volumes that's a really good so point. important yeah that's a really, really good Silence point. isn't always good. Just because something's silent doesn't mean it's not saying something. That's right. Silence is noisy sometimes. That's and right. that's a very loud silence. Yeah. That's exactly right. And then the last ritual that's included is the evening liturgy of the word and ritual of light. And this is the one that 
I've done at my parish at St. Nicholas, which was a beautiful communal evening of prayer, open to the whole community. And it included a sharing of song and scripture, and then a reciting of the names of children. And I think it was really profound for me, for the community, to to see what they what they didn't know, whether they didn't know at all that there was a, a miscarriage or a loss in the family, or you know, hearing the names recited and hearing that some of them have more than one loss, hearing that some of them uh, chose to name their children after relatives or after saints, or some of them don't have a name for a baby, but they still acknowledge the baby by calling them Baby Rup or February Baby or November Baby. And the beauty of allowing that to be holy and to be held in the presence of community and for it to be okay for your baby to have a name mm-hmm. for it to be okay for your baby to not have a name was beautiful profound stunning and it felt right to be able to to acknowledge and be present for one another to hold each other and to see as the names were recited the families light a candle for each name and suddenly the whole church is illuminated by these little lives that have changed all of our lives. And in the lighting of them, in the recognition for one another, now going forth from that prayer, none of us will be the same again because now we know and now we can be there for one another. And sharing and grieving together isn't going to make the grief hurt less. The grief will still be grief, but it doesn't have to be so lonely. Mm-hmm. Yes, incredible bond of uh, solidarity and um just kind of mutual, mutual desire to be present for one another. That is the stuff that deep community is built on, and it doesn't replace the loss of children or the desire for children, uh, but it maybe has the potential to teach us a little more about what the kingdom of heaven can look like here. And it doesn't always look like how we hoped it would look like, but the openness to life and creating life with God is also an openness to loss. And that's holy too. And it teaches us and shapes us and forms us, not only as individuals, I think, but as a culture, as a church, as a world.
place of welcome and delight. And Jesus said, Jesus said Don't be afraid. And Jesus said, For more information, including details about the music you heard on today's podcast, please visit our website at singamen.giamusic.com. Sing Amen is produced and supported by GIA Publications.